Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Revelant, and I'm a journalist, healthcare copywriter, and a mom of two. In every episode, we talk about the challenges around feeding kids and give you practical and realistic solutions that will inspire and empower you to raise healthy eaters. Hi, friends. Welcome to another week of the podcast. So when you get pregnant, you're more aware of your health and what's safe and what's not. And you learn about certain conditions that can occur, like gestational diabetes. And while it's true that rates are on the rise and it can lead to complications, you might not be getting the whole story. What they don't include in that conversation is that those risks are proportional to maternal blood sugar control. That's Lily Nichols, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author of the best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Lily talks about why rates are on the rise, how your own mother's health can have an effect on your pregnancy, and which test you should be asking for. She also talks about why a lot of guidance from providers about what to eat may actually be contributing to the problem and what to do instead. There is so much evidence-based information in this episode you've probably never heard, and I know you're going to enjoy this interview with Lily Nichols. Well, Lily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for the invite. Happy to be here. Great. Well, let's jump right in and talk about your story and your career path and and how you work today. Sure. Uh, Well, my background is as a registered dietitian and certified diabetes educator, And really, for the majority of my career, I've worked in the prenatal space. Um, Originally came into this work from the gestational diabetes side of things, actually. So I worked um, clinically as a dietitian and diabetes educator with a very well-known perinatologist who specializes in gestational diabetes and also worked with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, also known as Sweet Success, working on their guidelines and also helping to train other practitioners. Um, so with regards to gestational diabetes specifically, it's been very interesting to kind of see this field from many different angles, because if you only have the eye of a researcher or only the eye of a public policy advocate or only from a clinician standpoint, or even as a patient standpoint, you have a different perspective on the data mm-hmm. and um, on the best ways to, to manage and treat. So that's certainly been um, interesting for me. Uh, Ultimately, working in this field, though, led me to write um, two books, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and also Real Food for Pregnancy, um, where I'm really advocating for, you know, updated research to make it into the guidelines. There's often a really significant delay in in data making it into clinical practice and then an even longer delay making it into um, actual guidelines like public policy And that's typically around 17 years, by the way. Um, So my goal is to kind of shorten that gap and um, just like go direct to the people sort of grassroots level instead of top down policy um, these days anyways, to try to, you know, optimize for better nutrient intake, better pregnancy outcomes and ultimately better outcomes for baby as well. Great. So everyone has heard about gestational diabetes, but I think there's definitely just not enough information for women um, from their providers kind of in public arena. Um, So tell us what exactly is gestational diabetes? So gestational diabetes is elevated blood sugar that is either first recognized during pregnancy or first develops during pregnancy. So we have, you know, specific thresholds for what is considered 
normal blood sugar and then beyond that range gets you into the gestational diabetes realm. The difference between first developed and first recognized is an important differentiation though, because for most of the public, we're not regularly screening for diabetes or prediabetes. And in pregnancy, we do screen blood sugar. And so a lot of people are actually getting prediabetes first caught during pregnancy, which we just call gestational diabetes because we really can't differentiate the types very well during pregnancy. But any elevated blood sugar in the prediabetic range or beyond that was not previously diagnosed as an, as an issue is treated as if it's gestational diabetes. And that's a pretty significant proportion of cases, I would say. That's interesting. I never heard that. So why do you think that women aren't being screened appropriately? Because there's also the the difference between screening for blood sugar and A1C, right? Well, there's different ways to screen for blood sugar issues. And, you know, there's all sorts of debate amongst different organizations um, setting these sorts of guidelines on which markers should be used. You know, should it be a random glucose screening? Should it be a fasting glucose screen? Should it be a glucose tolerance test? Should we be using A1C? Should we be measuring insulin as well as glucose so we can get a handle on, you know, insulin resistance? Um, And so that's all still up for debate. The A1C specifically is a measure of how much of your hemoglobin, that's like your iron carrying protein in your blood, has been glycated or has essentially been sugar-coated. And since our red blood cells, at least outside of pregnancy, stick around in our bloodstream for a couple months, an A1C can give you a proxy of what your average blood sugar has been over a couple months. And so um, A1C has actually been proposed as a screening method, at least for early in pregnancy within the first trimester. So you're getting like a picture of pre-pregnancy blood sugar levels, because it can help differentiate if there's, you know, pre-existing pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes going on that was just undiagnosed. Um, But I think as a whole, a lot of people are not getting routine or detailed blood work. (laughs) And then once you're pregnant, it's like all of a sudden all eyes are on you and you're like, you know, suddenly you're like a patient in the medical system. And since most women who are having children are relatively young, you know, you're not necessarily as up to speed on, on checking blood markers um, as frequently as you might during pregnancy. Yeah. And is there any research that shows how many of women who are diagnosed with gestational diabetes actually had prediabetes or diabetes before becoming pregnant? You know, I don't have any specific stats on that to speak to. I can say that there's been a lot of discussion around using hemoglobin A1C as a first trimester screening for gestational diabetes. Um, the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, by the way, recommends that. And that's what we did clinically um, when I was working um, you know, in a perinatology practice. It, essentially, a high A1C, anything that's like in the prediabetic range or above, so 5.7 or greater, is highly, highly predictive of failing like the standard screening for gestational diabetes, which is a glucose tolerance test. And some of the studies say that it's like 98.4% predictive that you'll go on to fail a glucose tolerance test. So it's a very sensitive and specific um, indication 
that, well, actually, if your A1C is high in the first trimester, that is prediabetes. That didn't happen because of pregnancy, because the insulin resistance and other blood sugar changes, insulin regulation changes that happen during pregnancy uh, aren't happening yet in, in the first trimester. If anything, people uh, become more insulin sensitive, like your blood sugar actually drops a little bit in the first trimester often. Um, so th- that's an indication of a pre-existing issue. Um, and I can tell you from practice, since we did universal screening with A1C, if you had a high A1C, you were pretty much treated for the rest of the pregnancy as if you have gestational diabetes. You didn't have to do a glucose tolerance test. So it was actually very, very rare that I'd have somebody come back positive on a glucose tolerance test who passed the A1C screening in the first trimester. And we caught almost everybody with that first trimester screening that had blood sugar issues. So I don't know that there's like a hard and fast... Um, number on it. We do know like the adult U.S. population, there was a journal of the American Medical Association study from 2015, I believe, that found that 49 to 52% of adults in the U.S. have some form of blood sugar dysregulation, mostly prediabetes or type 2, and about half of which is undiagnosed. So it it could easily be half of cases maybe even more that are actually um, un- undiagnosed, unknown prediabetes. Wow. So yeah. gestational diabetes, how common is it? And, and then what are the causes and risk factors that women should know? Well, it depends on which uh, screening markers and thresholds you're using to diagnose. Um, by some of the more stringent uh, diagnostic criteria, you're looking at about 18% of pregnancies complicated by gestational diabetes. Some of the studies that are using less stringent kind of outdated markers might say it's more like 10 to 15%. Some of the really old data says 5%. But of course, the rates of gestational diabetes have been going up hand in hand with the rapid rise in prediabetes and type 2 um, in the general population. So it's quite common um, Compared to all other pregnancy complications like preeclampsia, for example, gestational diabetes is the most um, common pregnancy complication. As far as risk factors, there's a lot (laughs) that can potentially uh, contribute. Anything that in the general population would be associated with a higher risk of type 2 diabetes is also associated with a higher risk of gestational diabetes because it's some of the same physiological like underpinnings of of both conditions. So if you have family history of any form of diabetes, um, if you started your pregnancy um, at at a higher than expected weight, if you have a health condition that's associated with insulin resistance, like polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, um, If you have a history of say your mother had gestational diabetes with you, that can affect how your pancreas functions and is able to adapt to the higher demands that that pregnancy asks of it in terms of insulin production. There's so many potential um, risk factors. There's even like potential nutrient deficiencies that can play a role. Uh, Good examples are magnesium, vitamin D, chromium. Um, There are several others. So there's, there's a lot that can potentially um, underpin a diagnosis, and some of those are not necessarily within your direct control, like family history, for example. Are there certain ones that you think are driving up the rates? 
Well, I think a big under acknowledged one is that so starting in the early 1980s, we had our first dietary guidelines recommendation, which recommended a very low fat and higher carbohydrate diet um, and also really restricting saturated fat intake. And that led a lot of people to consume a lot more carbohydrates. The food that was low fat tasted really bad. So they put in a lot of sugar and other, you know, icky ingredients in it to make it taste palatable again. Um, We had a dramatic increase in the amount of sugar and processed carbohydrates that were consumed. And if you think about how of the people who are of age, coming of age to have children now, a lot of us were born to mothers who had us during this like carb craze, low fat craze of the 80s. And we do know that there are, there's a phenomenon called intrauterine programming or in utero programming, fetal programming, where the development of the baby is influenced by the maternal environment. So if our mothers had high blood sugar during pregnancy from overly restricting their fat intake, not eating sufficient amounts of protein, and then eating a whole bunch of refined carbohydrates because they thought that was, you know, that was (laughs) good for you to just anything, by any means, reduce your fat intake. Um, then that can program our pancreas to develop differently. Um, and we know that like children born to mothers who have poorly controlled blood sugar face anywhere from a six to 19 fold higher risk of type two diabetes later in life. Um, oftentimes they're developing it in their teenage years, which is just absolutely crazy. So, you know, we can't point the finger on one thing there. I could name like a dozen, but I think that is a big factor that is kind of underlooked because why are the rates going up like so much so quickly? It's like all of these babies born to moms who probably didn't have optimal blood sugar control in their pregnancies um, are now getting pregnant. So, wow. So you talked a little bit before about the glucose tolerance tests and different screening tools. And so how should women talk to their providers about which tools are right for them? And and you're saying in early pregnancy, ideally, right? I mean, I would recommend universal screening with a hemoglobin A1C for everybody. It's like so simple. It's inexpensive. It doesn't even have to be performed fasting. So just when you get your first trimester blood work, ask them to add a hemoglobin A1C to it. Um, if it's 5.7% or greater, technically under some guidelines, like I mentioned, the, the California Sweet Success Program guidelines, you'd be treated as gestational diabetes. Maybe your doctor's not aware of that. So, you know, maybe they don't practice by those standards, but that would at least, if you saw an A1C of 5%, 5.7% or greater, give you an indication personally to be like, whoa, let me just keep an eye on my blood sugar a little bit. <laughs> even if you go on to do, you know, another screening method later on, um, to see where you're at. Um, after the first trimester, A1C becomes inaccurate because your red blood cells turn over faster and your blood is more diluted. So there's your, your hemoglobin is sticking around in your bloodstream, uh, for a shorter period of time. And it's also more dilute. So it comes in less contact with sugar than it would outside of pregnancy. So your A1C will be so-called artificially lower, the further along you get in pregnancy. So you can't use an A1C screening at the 24 to 28 week mark, which is typical for like a glucose tolerance test because it'll be inaccurate. In fact, if it's not running low, 
then I would be concerned. Like if you are testing 5.7% or greater, that's that, that would be a problem at that point in time. Um, so usually at that mark, say you do the A1C screening in the first trimester, it's like 5.3, great, everything's fine. There's still a chance that you could you know, develop gestational diabetes later on in the pregnancy. And that's why they usually do that standard 24 to 28 week screen. The gold standard is a glucose tolerance test. Um, my one caveat with a glucose tolerance test is that it, it does have the possibility of false positives or false negatives. Um, really fit, active women who eat low carb, especially, are at risk for a false positive on it because their their pancreas is not adapted to be producing large amounts of insulin at a single time to like drive down a 50 or 75 or 100 gram uh, load of glucose because their meals might be like no more than 30 grams of carbs from low glycemic sources. Like they don't see blood sugar spikes frequently. So their body is not adapted to produce huge amounts of insulin. So in those cases, those women women would want to carb load prior to a glucose tolerance test. um, Or potentially you want to choose another screening method the other um, one that I could recommend, although it's not as conventionally accepted, is to just monitor your own blood sugar for a couple weeks. See where you're at. Check your fasting blood sugar. Check after your meals at one to two hours. Um, try out some higher carb meals, like try out a pasta dinner. <laughs> try out, um, you know, a sandwich. Try out having juice or a smoothie or something. Um, really see how your blood sugar response is to those foods and just get an idea of where you're at. That again is a bit controversial because, you know, by conventional standards, you kind of just want to have a single test. Like, is it positive or or negative? Mark it off on the chart, move on. Um, But I find sometimes, especially in like midwifery practices, for example, or if it's somebody who has like really low risk factors for gestational diabetes, they might be more open to working with you on one of the, um, you know, alternative options. Wow, that is fascinating. So we don't want to scare women, but I think we just don't talk enough about this. And so if you're diagnosed with gestational diabetes, what should you know about the risks to you and your baby? So I'll I'll say this by starting with the fact that your relative risk of anything going wrong is directly proportional to your blood sugar control during pregnancy. So I think the conventional medical world does a really good job of scaring women about gestational diabetes and all the bad things that can happen. And I'm not going to say they're lying. I mean, it's true. Bad things can happen. There can be birth complications. Baby can grow disproportionately large. Their blood sugar can tank after delivery, like leading them to be hypoglycemic. And that can be a medical emergency. There can be issues with lung development. There's all sorts of things. Um, there's a higher risk of maternal complications, like also developing preeclampsia. What they don't include in that conversation is that those risks are proportional to maternal blood sugar control. So if you have a really mild case of gestational diabetes or you're really on top of managing your blood sugar levels, we really don't see any higher relative risk of those complications. There's a really excellent study called the Hyperglycemia and Adverse Pregnancy Outcomes Study, also called HAPO. Um, years ago in like the early mid 2000s and they they logged like adverse outcomes birth outcomes um, related to 
maternal blood sugar levels. And it was a very clear correlation. So if you are able to keep your blood sugar in a really good range for the majority of your pregnancy, everybody, even people without gestational diabetes are going to have spikes every once in a while. That That's fine. We're talking about like consistent, like blood sugar going above range, you know, every day, multiple times a day situation. Um, then you might be a-okay if you're able to keep things in, in a healthy range. So a lot of it really has to do with like how, how diligent are you with monitoring and then adjusting your dietary and lifestyle habits. If those are not enough, you know, taking medication or insulin to keep your blood sugar within range, like how, how on top of it are you? That really determines ultimately what the risks are. Perfect. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about treatment and what women should know. If you want mealtimes to be easier and less stressful, getting your kids in the kitchen is one of the best things you can do. I know that it's really encouraged my kids to eat their vegetables and try new foods, and it's given them a ton of confidence in the kitchen. But if you don't know how to cook or you don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. This course was created by a mom of four and former elementary school teacher, and it's designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. With Kids Cook Real Food, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like Tex-Mex white bean dip and homemade pizza. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that they made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. You can sign up by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. We all know that kids love their snacks, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that are also affordable isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids really love the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds and Lara bars, especially coconut cream pie. So delicious. Thrive Market also has essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. So Lily, let's talk about what the conventional nutritional approach to treating gestational diabetes is. So by the conventional guidelines, the recommendations mostly focus around keeping your carbohydrate intake relatively even throughout the day. 
Um, so you have your, you know, an equivalent portion of carbohydrates at each meal and a smaller portion at your snacks with the goal of just trying not to cause a big blood sugar spike, um, at every single meal. Like you don't want to have half of your carbs all at one meal. Cause that will cause a larger blood sugar spike than if you spread them out more evenly. Um, it also generally follows the just overall dietary guidelines for the general public, which is, you know, low fat, limit your salt intake and eat more fruits and vegetables sort of advice. Um, that's all fine and good. Uh, however, what I found in clinical practice is that the carbohydrate recommendations, and they have a, they have a minimum recommendation, which is interesting of 175 grams per day. That often is not low enough in carbohydrates to prevent significant blood sugar spikes, um, especially at mealtimes. So if you break that up over the course of the day, and then sometimes you factor in increased carbohydrate needs if somebody has higher caloric needs, sometimes you're recommending like 45, 60, 75 grams of carbohydrates per meal. And that creates a really interesting situation because if you think about how we diagnose gestational diabetes, typically with a glucose tolerance test with anywhere from 50, 75 to 100 grams of glucose, and then we're providing you with essentially that amount of carbohydrates at each meal and expecting your blood sugar to miraculously be within range, you can see like the cognitive dissonance it takes to, to see how that would work because it doesn't in real life that often causes a really significant blood sugar spike. And so unless you have a really mild case of gestational diabetes, or if it's somebody who is like really active, oftentimes 175 grams of carbs per day is too much. Um, and ultimately that's what led me to write real food for gestational diabetes, by the way, was to provide the evidence and rationale for, um, yes, it's safe to, uh, reduce that a little bit and to match your carbohydrate levels to the amount that your body personally can tolerate. Cause we're all different instead of giving these sort of blanket recommendations, um, to everyone. Great. So what is the plan that you think is best? So first of all, I think it really needs to be individualized to the client. Like I said, everybody's blood sugar is different. Everybody's carbohydrate tolerance is different. Um, so it starts with checking your blood sugar and seeing how your body responds and then adapting to that. Um, a big missing piece in our prenatal nutrition guidelines, not just for gestational diabetes, but generally speaking, is that there's newer data as of 2015 that the protein requirements in pregnancy are a lot higher than we previously thought, upwards of 73% higher than the guidelines say. And protein significantly blunts your uh, post-meal blood sugar spike. Carbohydrates cause your blood sugar to spike the most. Protein doesn't spike it. Fat doesn't spike it. Um, And so if we encourage a higher protein intake, especially at breakfast, by the way, you get a higher protein breakfast, higher protein, lower carb breakfast, it sets the stage for better blood sugar control over the rest of the day. And there's a lot of data on that. I actually just posted a research brief on my Instagram on that topic. Um, And then just pair it with a smaller amount of carbohydrates, but better quality, higher fiber, higher nutrient density carbohydrates. We often have a much better um, overall blood sugar pattern for the whole day. So I think we just kind of need to flip some of our proportions instead of having a diet that's like half carbohydrates maybe have it more like a quarter, maybe a third at most of our diet carbohydrates and fill in the gaps with our fat and protein 
encourage um, lots of lower carb, uh, they call them non-starchy vegetables, like your leafy greens and whatnot. And that really, without getting into all the weeds, that really often takes care of uh, most of the blood sugar spikes. And at least for daytime blood sugar levels, often means that you can manage your daytime blood sugar levels without the need of medication or insulin. And so what are some of your favorite pregnancy superfoods to focus on to manage blood sugar? Well, as I mentioned, protein is going to be one of the most important nutrients to prioritize for blood sugar management. And it just so happens that our protein-rich foods, at least our whole food sources of protein, also are very nutrient-dense. They have a lot of the micronutrients that our body requires in higher amounts during pregnancy, like zinc and iron and vitamin B12 and folate and vitamin A and choline and so on. So some of the foods that fit into the high protein category, eggs are an excellent example, um, especially if eaten with the yolks. That's the number one dietary source of choline in our diets. Choline is really helpful for liver function. That actually plays a role in blood sugar management, believe it or not, um, but also important for fetal brain development. And eggs make virtually no blood sugar spike whatsoever. So if you compare like an egg-based breakfast to like an oatmeal-based breakfast, I also just did a post on this on my Instagram, um, you see a very different blood sugar pattern after the meal. You might only go up like a gradual rise of 10 or 15 points after eggs, but oatmeal will often spike people's blood sugar 50 to 100 points after having it, depending on, on what's combined with it. Um, and that's even in people who don't have blood sugar issues, by the way, this is just like, they spike your blood oats, just spike your blood sugar a lot. Right. Yeah. So, um, eggs would be like an excellent thing to emphasize your, um, non-starchy vegetables, as I mentioned, like your green leafy vegetables, salads and whatnot. The cool thing about vegetables, um, the, the lower carb ones, especially that have high fiber, like they sort of create a fibrous, uh, blob in our gut, so to speak, that slows down how quickly the carbohydrates that we might eat later at the meal um, are absorbed and enter our bloodstream. So if you start your meals, say lunch or dinner with a green side or a salad, um, even some like, you know, fermented vegetables like a a dill pickle, lacto-fermented dill pickle or sauerkraut or something, that really blunts your blood sugar spike um, later in the meal. So that's something to consider as well. Um, Back to the protein though, I mean, all of your protein rich sources have a place. So your meat and poultry and seafood and shellfish, um, beans and lentils, they do contain carbohydrates, but they have a lot of fiber. They also have protein in there. So they tend to not cause as big of a blood sugar spike as something like grains or potatoes. Um, so those foods, a, a broad mix of your different protein rich foods will get you not only, you know, a, a good solid foundation for blood sugar control, but also a variety of, of micronutrients. And what about healthy fats like avocado and fish oils? Also super important part of the diet. So fat doesn't spike your blood sugar. It kind of just stabilizes it. So um, and it's a, an important one for satiety. It, it sticks with you for a little longer. It keeps you full for longer. So any of the protein-rich foods I mentioned, um, at least the animal-sourced ones, also contain a significant amount of fat if we're not taking it out. So, 
You know, the eggs come with the yolks for a reason. Don't take them out. Uh, chicken comes with skin. Don't take it off. Eat it. There's actually a lot of good stuff in the skin as well. Steak naturally has some fat, but keep it in there. Um, and also adding in other healthy fats as well is, is really wise. So your avocados, like not only are they a rich source of fat, they're really high in folate, vitamin B6, potassium, fair amount of other nutrients that are beneficial, olives and olive oil, um, coconut products and coconut oil is good. Um, those are all, all things that have their place for sure. And they, they do not contribute to uh, blood sugar spikes. And this is an important distinction and something I like to highlight in Real Food for Gestational Diabetes because I felt like a lot of the clients who would come to see me felt like they had to starve themselves to manage their blood sugar. And, and you, you don't, and you shouldn't, by the way. Um, you definitely should not be starving. You should be full and satisfied between your meals. And that starts with understanding which foods raise your blood sugar and which foods don't. And so that's kind of how I break it up in the book. Like, these are the things that raise your blood sugar. Here's how you can find your tolerance for those things because carbs don't need to be eliminated entirely. You just need to sort of manage the amount that you're having at each time. And sometimes you'll identify specific ones for yourself that spike you more than others and everyone's different. And then here's these other foods that pretty much almost never spike people's blood sugar. So like have at it with these things, fill up your plate with these things. And um, you don't have to worry about like portion control, so to speak of those things, because they, they won't spike your blood sugar. Um, you don't, you don't need to like stress about that and you definitely don't need to starve. Wonderful. So you, you talked about, you know, it's okay to cut back on the carbs and, and we probably should. And so I think it begs the question, is keto safe during pregnancy? So I don't recommend a ketogenic diet necessarily in pregnancy. And that, that comes down to definitions of terms, I think, because as keto has gained popularity, there's a lot of, uh, mainstream ways in the public eye to define keto that are not aligned with like the clinical definition of keto. So a, a ketogenic diet typically is like limiting your carbohydrate intake to less than anywhere from 20 to 30 grams per day. And if you take it really to the letter by like what they used clinically for managing like epilepsy and seizures, for example, it's also very low protein. Um, now, the general public's way of interpreting keto is different from that. And so this is where like definitions of terms are important, in my opinion. I personally am of, um, of the mindset that we should restrict the diet as little as possible. You restrict the diet to the level that is needed for blood sugar management. As long as you're meeting all of your needs for protein and essential amino acids. So no protein restriction in pregnancy. Absolutely not entirely contraindicated. Um, and not entirely eliminating all of your carbohydrate food sources as well, because those also do provide some important nutrients. A lot of our carbohydrate sources, the nutrient dense ones, um, also provide us with minerals like potassium and magnesium. They provide us with folate, vitamin C, some B vitamins. And so they have they have their role. Um, so instead of limiting things to ketogenic levels, I would say just lower, choose, first of all, higher quality, high fiber carbohydrates. So for example, berries are much lower in sugar and have much higher 
levels of fiber than something like a mango. And that has a much different blood sugar effect. It's not that you need to eliminate mangoes from your diet. You could probably still have mangoes, but you'd probably have to be more careful about the portion of mango that you have at a single sitting versus a portion of blackberries, which have a ton of fiber and are pretty low carb because they have all those seeds in them, right? Yeah. Um, same thing with thinking about like, uh, I would say uh, nuts and seeds, for example. Nuts and seeds have fiber, protein, and fat, and a little bit of carbohydrate. So with that combination, they don't tend to spike your blood sugar as much as something that is almost pure carbohydrate, like something made of white bread, for example. So you can choose, pick and choose from higher quality carbohydrate sources. But if you're getting to the level of strictness where you're like counting carbs from kale, like (laughs) that's not, you're probably taking it too far. Um, for pregnancy. Most people I find actually do not need to limit themselves to ketogenic levels. Um, we could open up the conversation about ketones in pregnancy. Cause I have like a, you know, that's a, that's a, a much longer conversation. Um, but as far as like, how much do you need to restrict carbohydrates? It's often not down to 30 grams of carbs a day or less. You right. often have much more uh, wiggle, wiggle room than that, than you think. And so The pregnancy recommendations for exercise are 150 minutes a week. And, you know, studies show that most women aren't reaching that goal. And so for women who have gestational diabetes, how should they approach exercise? So I'm all for the 150 minutes a week. Um, But again, that's not always uh, something that works for everybody. I think one of the most helpful things to keep in mind with regards to blood sugar is that exercise helps to use up sugar. It's like giving the sugar in your bloodstream, which is just a form of energy somewhere to go, somewhere to use it up by moving your muscles. Also, the greater muscle mass you have, the more sugar you burn just on a day-to-day basis. So it does tend to improve your blood sugar control overall. Um, As for like the best way to fit it in, if you're not a person who does 30 or 60 minute standalone workouts, then fitting in even a 10 to 15 minute walk, especially in the one to two hours after a meal is a really good way to lower your blood sugar spike after eating. Um, And then it might be less like time consuming or obtrusive into your daily life than like fitting in a separate workout. And it doesn't have to be walking. You do like squats in your living room or like something like that. You don't have to be out on a walk, but that is one of the more helpful ways to lower a blood sugar spike is to incorporate a short walk after meals. So women with gestational diabetes studies show that they have an increased risk for type two diabetes. And so if you're diagnosed with it, if you're diagnosed with gestational diabetes, then what happens? How should they approach diet and lifestyle after giving birth? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. There is a higher risk of type 2 diabetes later on. And uh, gestational diabetes is actually the number one independent risk factor in women that predicts the development of type 2 diabetes later in life. Anywhere from 30 to 70% of women who had gestational diabetes will go on to develop type 2 diabetes. And it's usually in the first five to 10 years after, after that pregnancy. So the good news 
is that it's not fate or destiny that you'll be one of those statistics. There's a lot that you can do to reduce your risk. Um, First of all, you want to get screened postpartum to see where you're at. And they often recommend annual, annually or every three years screening after that to see where you're at. That could be as simple as doing a hemoglobin A1C, by the way. Some providers like to do like a glucose tolerance test or something like that instead. But the important point is not to overcomplicate things because the same things that you did during pregnancy for managing your blood sugar are the same things that you can carry with you for the rest of your life for managing your blood sugar. It's not like Yeah, there's some specific considerations in pregnancy, but overall blood sugar management is really the same at any life stage. So the concept of what I call no naked carbs, not eating carbohydrates by themselves, but instead pairing your carbohydrates with a source of protein or fat, and hopefully also choosing higher fiber carbs, that will mitigate your blood sugar spike. And lowering your blood sugar spikes day after day, week after week, year after year ultimately reduces your risk of having a more significant blood sugar and insulin regulation problem like prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. So all the things you did during pregnancy that lowered your blood sugar spikes, continue that long-term. Though walking regularly or adding some exercise, continue that long-term. Prioritizing getting a sufficient amount of nutrients that helps your body with your blood sugar and insulin regulation like magnesium and vitamin D, for example. Those are things to continue uh, long-term as well. Great. That's very encouraging. So Lily, thank you so much for your time today. This is a wealth of information. Where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? You can find me at my website, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. I have 250 plus articles up there free for the taking on my blog. You can use the search function to search for things. I have a free video series on gestational diabetes up there. You can just go to the freebies tab. Um, I also link out to my books. So if you have questions or want to see where you can buy uh, real food for gestational diabetes or real food for pregnancy, you can check there. And then as far as social media, I'm most active these days on Instagram and my handle is the same as my website. So it's Lily Nichols RDN. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That was a great interview with Lily Nichols. I really love how she combines the science with real-life, realistic, and reassuring information for moms. Be sure to pick up a copy of her two books, which I've linked to in the show notes, and check out all of her articles she has on her site and her online course. If you're enjoying Food Issues, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode, and I'll see you next week.